This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, layoffs coming to Textron Aviation. And the Reno Air Races are yet another victim of the coronavirus pandemic. And speaking of the pandemic, your medical certificate may expire a little bit later. And there's some good news in the GAA horizon with a new airplane from Diamond. Finally, we look at some of the exciting news in electric and alternative power plants. Ian, are you ready to do Hangar Talk Episode 100? Let's do it! From AOPA. Your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, you mentioned it. It's episode 100. We're going to pat ourselves on the back here. And congratulations. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks, everybody, for listening over this time. We've had some great guests on Hangar Talk. Uh, a couple of my favorites uh, I'd like to rattle off. I'm going to ask you who your one of your favorites was. But let's tease to our special guest today before we even do that. Yeah, that's a good point. So we both caught up. This is rare for us. So we both at the same time. Caught up with Mark Baker, who's, of course, our boss, but more importantly, really the, the head of general aviation in the, in the country. And he talks a bit about, I would say, his past, the present, and future for aviation. And a great insight on what airplane Mark Baker likes the best. And you'll just have to stay tuned to listen to that. Yep, a little later. So, so David, you, you've, I think, probably done the, the lion's share of the interviews, the guest interviews over the past few years. So tell me, wh- what are some of your favorites? You know, I really enjoyed interviewing Jim Payne from the Perlin Project, and he recently set another sailplane record. I just felt, I felt like he was an easy guy to talk to and had so much to offer general aviation. You know, my hat's off to him. I wanted to compliment you uh, on a couple that you did, though, Ian. I really like the Cuba story. I believe that you were on for that one. Yeah, yeah, that was, I had a great time with that. That was, yeah, Eric Norbert, very different world then, actually, from when we spoke and, and certainly when we went to Cuba. He's still active, but, you know, it's it's not like anybody can just jump in their Cessna and go down there anymore. So, yeah, I, I had a great time talking to Eric. Our our most popular show was Four Flight. So Tyson and Jason, that's not surprising, I suppose. That was a popular one. 
And also an old friend of mine and somebody I always love talking to, John Zimmerman from Sporties. I think that one did pretty well as well. Yeah, I was going to mention John Zimmerman from Sporties, and that was a good holiday show. We talked about some some future gifts for folks mm-hmm. back then. And I really enjoyed catching up with uh, Ramona Skychick Cox, and that was right around the time of the solar eclipse. So oh, yeah. we actually had a, a live hangar talk more or less from the solar eclipse as well as a follow-up. But we had some great ones, and I believe you caught up with John and Martha King for one, too. Yeah, we did that early on. That was at Oshkosh. Learned a lot about, you know, recording in the field and that sort of thing as, as we went along. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, and it's just been a lot of fun. I, I hope folks have enjoyed listening. It's, it's fun catching up with you every two weeks, just saying hi and, you know, talking about what's going on in aviation and you know, let us know. I, I think if, if you, there's been a guest that you like or somebody you'd like to, to hear from, you know, send us an email. Pilot at AOPA is probably the easiest way to do that. So pilot at AOPA.org. And let us know what you've liked and what you haven't liked and or leave us a comment in iTunes or, or something like that. That sounds good. Well, let's let's jump right into some of the news, which there's some good news and there's some bad news. So it's yeah. kind, of, kind of a mixed bag here today. Yeah, yeah, that is the world we live in now, I suppose. Let's start with the bad news, some of the bad news. Get that out of the way. Textron Aviation, of course, they make Beechcraft, Cessna. They do some other stuff, obviously, that's not necessarily GA-focused. But they notified employees on June 23rd that across the entire company it will be 2,000 job cuts specifically towards, I think, Cessna and some of the others. It's more, you know, a little more measured than that, more in like the hundreds. Yeah, there's uh, local workers that will be effective in Wichita. You know, Textron is the largest employer in that area, Ian. So that's kind of a big hit to the local area. Mm-hmm. And we found out about some of this through a June 18th filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. So uh, there were a little, you know, a little bit off the cuff on that, but we do hope that things will start to look up. Although that is the second, as you mentioned, it's the second of a series of layoffs or basically postponements, you know, to the job environment for Textron Aviation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like we said, bad news. Uh, one thing we should mention, we, uh, one thing I forgot to say is uh, true simulation and training. You know, that's one of their big up and coming businesses. And so that there'll be some cuts there as well. But it's, you know, you would think with everything going on that cuts would be a little bit deeper kind of across the industry. And they really haven't been. And in fact, AIN had a story that you found that showed that at least one analyst thinks that things are really coming back to kind of where they were pre-pandemic. Yeah, Peter Arment, he wrote that basically he was quoting AIN as saying that we're looking at a U-shaped recovery in the business aviation segment, which is interesting, and it's it's shifting to a V-shaped one. So that's kind of like a from a gradual change to a, a sharp change. And I also heard today, I was listening to an, a special in, an insurance webinar, and the uh, there are several segments of general aviation that are on the up and up. So we're starting to see kind of a, a pretty good recovery here in the general aviation world in certain segments of general aviation. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've talked about, I think, in GA and sort of private flying that that's, that's back. I mean, you look at IFR filings from ForeFlight and some of the tower data that uh, the FAA has taken, kind of sampling around the country, and that's that's all looking great. I think business aviation is starting to come back. You know, charter, a lot of that was for business, and so that had slowed down. But interestingly, they were saying in this, you know, in the analysis that at least one charter operator was saying 90% of their business right now is personal, which which is really unusual. That is a big shift in that in that field. And I think we'll continue to see some of that as the days and weeks progress. And you are so correct with general aviation. It doesn't seem like the coronavirus pandemic has slowed us down all that much, although Flight training ops have had some hurdles to jump over, That's true. basically because of the confines 
of a, of a cockpit. You know, it's not a big place. Yeah. So uh, there are some challenges in that. But I would feel so much safer flying my own airplane across the country than, I hate to say it, than jumping on an airline. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that way, which is which is part of what's playing into the charter surge. Certainly personal travel, you know, people who can afford it. It's been bottled up. And now that things are starting to open, it's like they're gone off and traveling. So that, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately... One place they're not going to be able to travel to, pilots, is Reno for the air races. That's always held in September. And this year, for the first time since September 11th, they will be canceled. Yeah, the Reno Air Races announced that they were going to cancel this year's show. That announcement came last week on June 26th. And, you know, last year there was a lot of interest, Ian, in this stall competition that Reno just started to implement. And so I'm, I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to see that this year. And that actually brought a lot of additional aviation enthusiasts to those races. Yeah, that's true. In fact, they, I think they're saying there's about 70,000 unique visitors who come to Reno every year. Now, that's important because not every air show counts unique visitors. So that's meaningful. So 70,000 people, that's big. And of course, you know, they've been holding this really continuously since uh, we mentioned September 11th, but this has been going on since the 60s. So that's that's a long time. A lot has happened in the world since then for this, you know, this to be one of the few times they've been canceled. Yeah. And also keep in mind that this is a big boon to businesses, too, that would have brought in a hundred million bucks, you know, as a total economic impact to the Reno Tahoe area mm-hmm. for non-visitors. And that is a good way to see the country, too, and to, to uh, get some sights in because it's a real beautiful part of the world. Uh, aviators especially know that. So uh, that's a shame that we won't be able to see it this year. Of course, we could always look to 2021. Yeah, and I think just like we've talked about with Oshkosh and Sun and Fun and everything else, when this stuff comes back next year, it's going to be huge, I think, because people, you know, like it's it's all bottled up. Like we we're saying about the business travel, the personal travel on charter, it's like people are itching to get out to a fly-in, you know, to a show, something. So I think they're going to have a big year next year. That's right. And uh, something that you teased too at the top of the show, Ian, is also big news in the aviation world. A lot of folks have called into our Pilot Information Center asking about their medical certificates that were, you know, basically impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. And you've got some news for us on that front. Yeah, so the the SFAR, the Special Federal Aviation Regulation that the FAA issued a couple months ago that extended a lot of different things, you know, medical certificates, flight instructor certificates, that sort of thing. So they have extended again the SFAR. So this gets a little confusing. So you got to get it, really get into the new one if you're looking for some sort of, you know, easement from your medical certificate expiration date and some other stuff. I will say this latest one applies mostly to medicals. It is a little confusing, but if you go onto AOPA's website or, you know, dig into the SFAR, you, you know, you'll get it. The basic idea is if your medical extended now further into the year, so let's say August, September, you'll get a few more months on top of that. And I'm part of that category, Ian, because mine, oh, really? goes, yeah, mine goes through August. So I've got a few more months. Okay, I'll have to look back at the exact date of mine. But I think if mine expired before August 31st, I've got until November the 30th. Yep, that's right. So and, and you can kind of wind that backwards. So if you expire at the end of July, you're good through the end of October. If you expired at the end of June, you're good through the end of September. And of course, if you expire at the end of September, you're good through the end of December. And I I would guess, I mean, we'll see what happens in the world here. I would guess this is going to be it. So if you can get to an AME and if you feel safe enough and you can mask up and everything else, I, I would try and get that medical renewed during this process because I would not count on another extension. So maybe instead of waiting until the due date, maybe jump ahead a little bit. And uh, like in my case, maybe now would be a good time. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we, I don't have any insight on that or anything else. I just think, you know, safe money says it's like get it done if you think you can get it done safely. I agree with that. Well, speaking of safe, let's talk about a a, a new airplane that's got yeah. uh, it's got five seats and a lot of safety features, a retractable gear single from Diamond Aircraft. Yeah, the DA50 RG for retractable. Diamond has been flying this thing for years. I mean, this is like, you know, they've tried different power plants, but this this thing has been well tested. Like we said, been flying it for years. This is going to have, this is interesting, it'll have the Continental 300 horsepower CD300 diesel engine up front. You know, Diamond, a big leader in diesels. So this is a, this is an interesting airplane. It fits between, you know, the 40 and the, you know, the 42 and 62 and that sort of thing. So I don't, what, do, what do you think of this? Oh, I, I know it, it borrows a lot of the features from the Diamond DA62. I really like the fact that we've got a diesel, another diesel engine coming on board in a general aviation aircraft. Mm-hmm. You know, look into the future. In the States, it doesn't affect us so much as it does in operations in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, South America, because it's easier to get, you know, jet A fuel over there. But I do like the fact that we're going to have a retractable gear airplane. You know, the Cirrus is a a competitor to this type of aircraft, and it doesn't have the retractable gear. So you've got a sleek airplane here, still has the Garmin G1000 NXI flight deck, and all the safety advancements that that brings along, including the autopilot system, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't see anything about a parachute on the Diamond. No, no, it doesn't appear they've put in a parachute. You know, they are saying that it's it's going to go 180 knots, go to 20,000 feet. One thing, I, I think this is interesting. If you go on and you see the photos, there's a couple of things I think we should, you know, you can sort of glean from this. Now, first of all, they haven't released a price, so we don't know exactly how much it's going to cost yet. But I think the Cirrus is a great comparison. You know, chances are they'll price it in that neighborhood. It only holds 50 gallons of fuel. So it's a five-person airplane, supposed to be a long-term traveler. You know, it only holds 50 gallons. Now, that speaks, of course, to the diesel and the fact that it burns less. Right. You know, they're saying nine gallons an hour. I also think, you know, they're looking at some weight issues. Diesels are, are heavier. You know, diesel engines are heavier. Yeah. And so I think they're looking at, you know, trying to control some weight issues. They say there's going to be a 1,200-pound useful load. It is five seats, you know, so it's like, I don't know, you're going to be able to fill all five seats and put any amount of fuel in it? I don't know. You have to do the math on that and actually do it pretty close <laughs> as well. Yeah. But but the, the range looked pretty good at 750 nautical miles with a 30-minute reserve. I kind of like that at nine gallons an hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The other thing is I, I'm, I'm wondering about cooling because if you look at the cowl on this thing, this looks total... 80s aerospatial to me it's like they must have employed the same engineer because the cowling is very sort of old school for such a new airplane so you know it's got those big it's got that big sort of open cowl on the front rather than those sleeker you know sort of more efficient you know circular cowls that are newer so i think that'll be interesting I, I'm, I'm curious why they designed it that way and and i think it'll be interesting to see how it performs in the real world I'm curious about the handling of this aircraft. It's a T-tail aircraft, so um, so that's something to think about. But, you know, it looks kind of roomy, and it looks like it'll get the job done. It's got those nice long wings and winglets on it. So, yeah, yeah I think looking at a lot of the cues that you see on the twin, you know, it carried over to the uh, DA-50 five-person model. I, I do think that this is a real interesting airplane, and it certainly looks like it's got leg room and room to spare on the inside. Yeah. Oh, well, you mentioned the room. That's really good because the seats are adjustable, which is, you know, typically in diamonds is is difficult, if not impossible. So that's, I bet, something customers have been asking for. The other thing I like is that the right stick is removable as an option. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Real good point. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. 
Yep. And that's big because I remember flying, you know, friends in the 40 and they look at that and they're like, I have to sit on like basically with that thing between my legs the whole time. And it's like, if you're not flying or training, it's a bit of a, you know, it's kind of in the way. So I really like that that's removable. And it could be off-putting to someone who's a passenger and not a pilot. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, exactly. You. Yeah. Okay. So that's cool. I mean, we can't wait to fly it. It'll be, uh, you know, I think it's it's great that they're finally coming out with it. So we'll we'll see we'll see how it does. They're they're they've been doing great the past year or so. So more power to them with that one. Absolutely. Well, speaking of different power plants, you know, we we're just talking about the Continental Diesel. We've got a pretty interesting update on other visions for aircraft in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, so a lot of stuff's been going on and a few things coming out. So let, let's start with electric. One thing I don't think we talked about last show that had just happened is that Pipistrol certified their electric trainer. That's big news. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, the thing about the training market, Ian, is that I think that that's a great fit for an electric airplane, something that is even a hybrid aircraft in that case, because that gives students, you know, it can, I think the price to entry is less. Mm-hmm. And you're going to stay in the pattern and learn a little bit more about, the, about how to handle an airplane. You don't need huge range. You don't need a lot of time in the air. I mean, if you look at a typical lesson, 40 to 50 minutes in the air, you know, a young student, or I don't want to say young student, a, a student with less experience, you're kind of oversaturated at that point. So that is not a bad idea for a training aircraft. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is the, this is important. It's the first certified electric airplane. They're calling it the Velis. Now, we covered this a number of years ago when Tom Horn went to um, Slovenia to actually fly it. And at that time, it was called the Alpha Electro which is also, this gets so confusing with Pipistrol, it's the electric version of the virus, or the virus, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But We're going to call it a virus right now to stay yeah. away from the virus. That's true, that's true, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so the Velis Electro, I can't wait for it to be certified in the U.S. So, you know, it's the ASA certified right now. I, I do think FAA will come on board with it afterwards. But, you know, you mentioned electric and training. Of course, that's what Bi Airspace is going after with the with the E-Flyer 2, and, and they're trucking right along. Yeah, you know, it seems like we get a news release out of Bi Aerospace out of Denver almost every other week. And um, that's good news, too. They're looking at a, a prototype of the Rolls-Royce electric motor that's currently on the E-Flyer 2. And so this is kind of interesting. I think uh, partnering up with Rolls-Royce is a, is a big step, too. Ian, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think they're doing great. I mean, they've they've got a ways to go. We should say George Bai is going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, so keep an ear out for him. And so he talks a little bit more about the airplane and how it works and what he thinks kind of the sweet spot of the market is. But basically what they've done is gotten to a point in the certification process where the FAA says, okay, we, we buy off in this general concept. We think it'll work. Keep going. And so now they're going to build some more sort of confirming proto- conforming prototypes, I should say. And, you know, this is where they start to really gather data in the flight test process. So I think that's a good sign. You know, I think they're, they're on their way. So, yeah, I, I, again, another one we can't wait for. I think it's, gonna, it's very exciting. Now, you wrote about this other kind of propulsion system quite some time ago. is a hydrogen propulsion system on the Zero Avia or is it Zero Avia? Yeah, Avia, I think, Zero Avia, yeah. And that was on a Piper M350. That first flew back in 2019. Mm-hmm. And so there's been some movement on that front as well, Ian. And I think that you talked to those folks back then. I don't know if you remember any of the specifics. I hate to put you on the spot, but what do you think about that as a new propulsion system? I mean, I think it's really interesting. One thing that's in this story that, you know, is important is that 
So, you know, one reason that, that electric has taken some time to get off the ground, huh, so to speak, is that, you know, the, the energy density is lower than fuel, right? So you got to carry more weight for the same amount of total energy. Right. But that's not the case with hydrogen. Hydrogen is, has a high energy density. And so theoretically, if you can make it work, if you can carry it safely in the tank and that sort of thing, you know, you, get, you take away some of those battery issues. Some of the problem with hydrogen is the, the ground infrastructure you know, I mean, you got to put hydrogen filling stations everywhere, which is just, you know, I mean, have you ever been to an airport with a hydrogen filling station? I, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe they're out there. No, but I could see that that is an, a logistics option that could happen because yeah. you still have the transport, the overland transportation system to get the material from one place to, the, to another place, you know, via trucks or whatever it is or pipelines. You know, and, and you did mention something really important is that hydrogen goes a lot farther than batteries because yeah. of the weight to you know the weight to power ratio, but yeah they're both hindered a little bit by the delivery system and the yep. logistics of getting it there and you know charging you can say the same thing about charging stations they're not prevalent everywhere either. No, no, that's true. So they, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about them now is they flew, like you said, in the U.S. last year, and they flew in, I guess it was Britain in the U.K. what just a couple of weeks ago. So they're they're continuing to move, which is great. You know, kind of the the compromise between all this is hybrid. You know, I mean, the right. first cars to use electric were hybrid and mass produced. So there's been a few folks working on hybrid, and one of them is Technum. Yeah, and speaking of hybrids, you know, cars, I think you and I both had a Prius at one yeah. time. I actually yeah. have another one right now. And so oh, do you? To, yeah, okay, yeah, cool. my daughter's driving it right now. So, yeah, um, they're great cars. They are, and they are, and really dependable. And I think that, that we've hit on something there. They're dependable. The, the options have been out there for quite a while, and Technum, you know, basically combining a, a hybrid system where you have a, a fuel-powered engine as well as a battery, you know, slash electric-powered engine working on different facets of the flight and the flight envelope, I think might be a good compromise. Yeah, it really is a nice compromise. I mean, it's like you're burning less fuel, as you know, with the Prius. But you've you've got you know you don't have the the sort of the all these things to think about with battery like where am I going to recharge and how long is it going to take and all this other stuff and so it really is a compromise in those two worlds. I mean, one thing that Toyota figured out early on that I just think was phenomenal was that was how you interacted with the system, right? I mean, it just happened. Like there was no, you didn't have to go in there and set a bunch of different settings and change things. It's like you just put your foot on the gas and it went. Yeah, it went slowly. But it went. <laughs> well, I understand what you're saying because now I've never flown a manual wastegate, you know, turbo aircraft. But mm -hmm. if, if my understanding is that there's a lot to manage there, you know. Yeah. And, and you're juggling different things and you're still trying to fly. And what if it's IFR and, and all like that? But, yeah, the, the seamless system like this that combines a parallel hybrid electric powertrain seems to hit on all the right cylinders, pun intended. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And of course, you know, we use most of our energy on takeoff. And so if you can get all the oomph for takeoff yeah. and in cruise not have to use it all, it's like, you know, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. We'll keep our eye on that. I think that's interesting. And Tetanum has been moving ahead with some other technology. It wasn't too long ago we were talking a little bit about one of their diesel concepts that just came to the market, too. So, yeah, yeah they're out there. Good. Hey, so actually, it's a great segue to Mark because, you know, Mark is is really keeps a close eye on all this technology because it is a lot of this it will be the future of aviation and so AOP wants to be right on top of that so it's just one of the many things that uh, that we get to chat with him about
So Mark, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out. I, I know it's a busy time. Really appreciate it. Excited to talk to you for our 100th episode, just to, to get sort of a, an overview of where you see GA and, and some of your successes over the years and where you see us going in the future. Well, thanks, Ian, and, and congratulations to you and the team uh, putting this messaging out. AOPA is in, uh, in a great place. Um, celebrating our 81st anniversary this year was a little bit different than we expected to do because we didn't have our fly-ins that we like to have around the country. It's been a crazy year, as we all know, from COVID to Black Lives Matter. You know, this is an interesting time, but aviation and AOPA are doing big things and good things. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in terms of what we can do to help the whole country and the culture. Great, great. Yeah, so we'll get to that. But let's start with you a little bit. For folks who aren't aware, give us a little background about you and, and specifically your aviation story. Well, it, it's a it's a simple and kind of humble one. Story means humble, I hope. <laughs> My grandfather went to school with this young fella up in Little Falls, Minnesota, Charlie Lindbergh. You may have heard of him. So he became kind of the lore. My grandfather was very interested in aviation, although he was a poor farmer in uh, northern Minnesota, and ultimately came to work on B-24s during the war, changing spark plugs out and doing the mechanical kinds of things. My father then also worked for North Central Airlines at the very beginning, cleaning DC-3s through high school. Neither one of them could afford to uh, fly at that point in time, their careers and other things. So I became the first flyer after taking high school aviation ground school, and then further took it in the University of Minnesota, bought a Cessna 150 with a friend from a farmer in Rice Lake, Wisconsin for a total price of $4,500. Got another guy to teach us how to fly it for six bucks an hour. And uh, there is a story, 1978, got my license. So that's 42 years ago. And since then, I've owned a lot of different aircraft and enjoyed flying in so many different ways from a business perspective, getting into meetings and opening up a bunch of retail companies from flying World War II aircraft to taking my grandfather and his very first airplane ride, and then ultimately helping my father get his pilot's license uh, when he was 61. And two son-in-laws and a son and others, brother or sister-in-law, all have been infected by the aviation bug as I passed it on. Fantastic. You went backwards. Most people, you know, it's like they learn from their their dad or their grandfather or whatever. You, you went the opposite way. Yeah, it, it, and it was. And it was simply that spark in... The high school curriculum that we now provide to will be close to 300 schools around the country this year was what got me down a different path. There's no question about it that that created the interest and the facts that I think I could do this. And um, I'm hopeful that we're uh, providing that same kind of opportunities for kids all over this country. Well, Mark, Dave Tulis here jumping in. You know, that is a good segue to uh, another question that we have on our minds which is what can the aviation industry do to expose a more diverse population to aviation career options? And we're seeing a lot of that right now with some protests in the street, you know, a lot of advocacy. So we're wondering if you could jump in on that and tell us a little bit more about our You Can Fly high school curriculum program. Certainly right. And uh, David, the, uh, this industry, aviation, um, has had a reputation of being a, a white men's club, if you will, the Tuskegee group uh, broke into this slowly during World War II. And, you know, it was my great pleasure to fly General Charles McGee for his 100th birthday on December 7th last year, 2019. And to know him and to see how he was able to persevere is an inspiration for all. You know, we plan to have a, a trophy in his name like we do in the, Ho in the Hoover name to represent and recognize that anybody that wants to, there is a way. What we're trying to do with our You Can Fly high school program and, and the whole initiative was to get into these high schools that would be underrepresented kids in urban areas, also in rural Oklahoma, where they haven't had the exposure 
to aviation careers in the same way that some of these urban places have and better off have. So one of the things that we divined early on was to make sure that this curriculum was free. And so the donors with a, that I've been working with for the last half a dozen years have put millions and millions and millions of dollars of donor money to build out a professional high school curriculum that can be taught at any school, a private school, a charter school, home school. And this year, the fall of 2020, we'll actually finish our fourth year of the curriculum, the 12th grade. We started out teaching this three years ago. The teachers came to Frederick, Maryland to be trained how to teach it. This year, they had to learn how to do it virtually. We'll have about 300 high schools in over 40 states in this country teaching an aviation curriculum that was exclusively provided by AOPA and the AOPA donors and the foundation to get this out there. And one of the things that we found, 40% of the kids signing up for this program are actually from underrepresented groups or on some type of meal program. That's the people that we want to have that can get access to this. I would like to jump in and, and, and let you know, Mark, that, you know, I've covered some of the symposiums that we've had and the teachers are just fired up. I mean, they are really ready to present aviation as a viable career option to their students. And the students are paying attention in class. So they're not falling asleep like I did, you know, in high school. They're really paying attention and enjoying it. And we've had great success. I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about that with the female pilot population, a potential female pilot population versus uh, what we see now. Yeah, no, you're right, David. The, you know, these high school symposiums, which uh, we hope to have this one which will be in uh, Orlando this fall with you know hundreds and hundreds of educators and uh, superintendents that uh, choose this curriculum and share their ideas on how to teach this curriculum has been a very gratifying event for me to see the enthusiasm and what they tell us and we get to see is the these kids are engaged, highly engaged. And one of our bigger sponsors coming on this year is the U.S. military because you know, we're thousands of pilots short in the U.S. military today. Even though the airlines may be a little bit full today, now, that'll change in the next three to five years. And we're talking about these investments in this education that will bear fruit in eight, 10, 15 years out. So we're still committed to this in a big way. And, and the, the female population that we have been struggling for years in aviation to have something north of 5%, 6%, finally at 7% of the aviators in this country are, are women. And yet when I look at the, uh, the student populations, it's close to 12% of the student populations are women. So we're making progress way too slow. But it's nice to see that we can make a difference. And, you know, a very significant number of these kids in these high school programs are females. Whether they decide to go down a controller career or, you know, flyer career, you know, technician, engineering career, anybody that wants to join aviation can do it. There is a way. So, Mark, You Can Fly has been kind of a central platform of your time at AOPA. Another one that you worked really hard on was Basic Med. What do you think Basic Med has meant for GA? And I would ask, do you consider it your biggest accomplishment legislatively to date? So it, it was. Basic Med, when I listened to our members on my first tour, which will be seven years ago this fall, they're much concerned about you know medical reform at some level. And it had been stalled for, call it 30 some years. Lots of conversation, no accomplishments. We put together a team in D.C. to work on this and communicated with uh, big supporters, Senator Inhofe in the, in the Senate and Graves in the, in the House and others. And we were able to put together a program because the FAA had not moved forward with reform, which was available to them to do if they wanted to, decided to create a law. And as we all know that have been involved in legislative work, that less than 1% of the bills ever turn into a law. And this was turned into a law 
four years ago and was signed by Obama. And since that point in time, we have over 50,000 people in the U.S. flying under basic med. And this is where you get to work with your own doctor to find what you're safe for flying and, and making sure you're managing your health with a, a lower cost potentially than doing these, some cases, silly tests that don't add one degree of safety because we all get into cockpit every day. And even if you have a first-class medical, it's almost a 24-hour guarantee at best. Point is, we are all responsible for our health and our safety of our passengers and our aircraft every time we make that decision to fly. And this helps focus that on the individual maintaining their health with their doctor and being aware of all the prescriptions on our website, uh, they can do it. So I consider this, you know, a major, major event for AOPA and its members in providing value, able to fly to now Mexico and Bahamas. I know the number one question I get all the time is when do we get to fly to Canada? I was hopeful that we'd make some progress this year on that, but the ICAO conference in Montreal was canceled because of the COVID virus. So hopefully by next year, we'll get Canada on track with that. Uh, it will happen in Canada, just a matter of Canada and the rest of the world, except basic med as an alternative way to comply with a medical requirement. So it's been a, a grateful thing. I think every time I go to an event uh, anywhere, whether it's AirVenture or Sun and Fun or all of our fly-ins, I get thanked profusely from members for getting that done. But it was really a big team effort. And legislative things can work. Our voices, while small, are really heard well in the halls of Congress. That's a great answer, Mark. And we're all really excited about Basic Med and the thousands of pilots that we've helped out through the last few years jump on board and get back into the flight deck again. But I want you to put your thinking cap on and stare into the crystal ball for a minute and tell us what you think some of the biggest challenges will be in the coming years as we enter that EVTOL environment. Well, we'll talk about the EVTOL in, in a bit, but I am very excited what's going on in, in general aviation right now. You know, we have 5,000 public use airports. The airlines are pulling back from hundreds and hundreds of locations where they used to service what they call an essential air service, which meant they were getting somewhat of a subsidy to fly to these areas that may be in the middle of nowhere, Dakotas or Nebraska or, or Iowa or upstate New York or wherever. And those services have been cut because they can't afford to go there any longer. And then the service, generally, the schedules are cut by somewhere in the 50%, 60% range, and the prices have gone up. So what we've seen is a immediate reaction in flight schools that are teaching how to get an instrument rating or getting people into their better aircraft or taking on people that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s that may be in business and, or have families that they have to get to. General aviation is an answer and a solution to a lot of people during this crisis and afterwards because I think some people will be concerned about getting on or going through airports and reduce crowds for some period of time to come. And general aviation is one of the solutions that gets people around this country in a very unique way and, and a viable way. So near term, I am seeing transactions and our legal services is busy with 50% of its calls every day is coming in with how do I buy an aircraft and here's the contract I want to put through. So we're seeing a big change in the uh, GA population near term. So as we think about five years out and beyond, uh, I, I'm very excited about electric, particularly what it can mean for the training environment. You know, E-Flyer is an example, still saying that it's going to be about $24 an hour to operate. Think of the simplicity of not, you know, checking the oil and uh, worrying about overheating cylinders and all those kinds of things and weight and balance changes with fuel when you fly an electric aircraft and you can focus on just flying the aircraft and not worrying about the mechanical sides with what they suggest will be close to a 10,000 hour overhaul, very low cost to operate and very simplified way. And then, of course, the technologies which we've seen in Piper has just been approved and soon will be 
Pierce and TBM with the auto land safety features that are being employed because of the technologies that exist today really are going to, I think what Sears did with creating confidence in the, the parachutism as a relief mechanism, as a safety mechanism, the mechanisms today in the cockpit that can make people have more confidence about general aviation safety. Even though we've come a long way as already in safety, it's half what the fatal rate was you know, 20 years ago. You know, there's still too many accidents. We're down to the levels that some of these technologies can even improve that significantly. Before we leave the subject, Mark, I want to just jump back to something you, you started with right at the outset of that question, the rural and relief airports and service cuts. I've heard you say this several times that a mile of highway will take you just about a mile, but a mile of runway might take you anywhere. That's right. That's one of my favorite things. I just love it because it's true. And, and not only is, is aviation fun, and I use it for fun a lot, it's a way to connect people. And there are 5,000 public use airports in this country today that can use more traffic, or enjoy more traffic, and these aircraft are ready to go. So I, I try to inspire people that say, you can do this. And that was a whole idea of you can fly. Where there was rusty pilots, putting pilots together so they can afford to fly through a flying club, the high school curriculum. These were things were about inspiring people that there is a way you can fly, lots of ways. So, Mark, you mentioned you can fly again, and, and also, you know, we discussed Basic Med. I, I'm curious, you know, Basic Med was partly successful because members rallied big time. So today, looking at today, obviously the pandemic has hit certain sectors of aviation in a big way, uh, although, as you mentioned, GA is doing particularly well right now. But, you know, the future population, as people kind of look to that, what are some of the ways that they can get engaged and, and help directly? One of the ways that I'd like to see people get involved is, you know, We'll be posting the list of the 300 high schools here probably in the next month. Is go to those high schools, visit them, offer an, a tour of your your hangar, your aircraft, a day at the airport. We want to connect the uh, the members that really care. And of course, you know we all are also in the process right now of a, a James Ray match. You know this year the James Ray Foundation. And a quick mention of James Ray was a fellow I knew who was a World War II B-17 driver, who he and I became friends and. Uh, he uh, invested tens of millions of dollars in AOP to help get this thing started in the, in the foundation. And then uh, as he passed April 1st of three years ago, it's now about how do we create matches to get people involved. And, and one of the things I'm really proud of is that the absolute number of donors have gone up from you know, a few thousand to five to 7,000 donors that care and, and trying to help us get to this match level. This year, it's two and a half million dollars that they've said, if you can raise two and a half, we'll match it by two and a half million dollars. It ends in August 31st. There are ways you can either get physically involved, financially involved, but as important as anything, being aware of what AOPA is doing on behalf of its members in the aviation community and being an ambassador to your airport to say, hey, this makes a difference. Stay as a member. These people make a difference. And together, our voices get heard. Well, we're getting ready to have a story um, as we record this. I know we're working on a, another scholarship story right now. We're going to release the winners of the scholarships here for 2020. And as you said, now we've awarded more than a million dollars in scholarships. And in 2019, I know that we gave out 100 scholarships, 80 to students, Mark, and 20 to teachers. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that the James Ray Foundation has given us that donation exclusively to be managed through AOPA. We had thousands and thousands of applications. Again, this year, like last year, will be a million dollars to go to people that have an interest in learning how to fly or upgrading their ratings. And we reserve 20% of them for the teachers because of the multiplier effect 
they may be able to have on their student populations. And we've seen a significant number of these people already get their ratings and their training. It did slow down, obviously, in the last 90 days from some of the COVID and the slowdown of some of the flight schools. But I believe we'll see over 80%, as we have seen in years past, uh, accomplish significant flight regimens, whether it's upgrading to an instrument rating or getting their private pilot's licenses. So we're excited to, to administrate that on behalf of the James Ray Foundation under AOPA. And it has been really rewarding to see the thousands and thousands of applicants that sign up for these um, scholarships. And then almost going hand in hand with that, I was going to take us to the future and look at training in a virtual reality world. Some colleges like Embry-Riddle and others have started to pioneer that technology where you're not actually in an airplane or you're not actually turning a wrench on a cylinder head bolt. And there's a lot to be said for that in the future, but I think there's some regulatory hurdles that need to be addressed as well. Yeah, VR is probably call it the next level of technology that's really going to change, A, the access, B, the cost. And, and the, what the Air Force has been telling us, and we were working pretty close with the Air Force on this, even the quality of the training. The example that the Air Force gave me was you know, to teach somebody to fly a fighter in formation costs tens of thousands of dollars an hour, as you can imagine. And, you know, the weather and all the other things that play into the uh, training of tight formation and form-ups and uh, maneuvers, very expensive, obviously with some risk. They've been able to get it down by tens and tens of hours. They think probably somewhere in the attitude about 40% less real fly time by doing that through VR. So if you can learn how to fly a military fighter in formation, VR, and save half the time, Think what it can do to a general aviation. I'm really excited about what it's doing. The technologies are still at their early stages, but it's uh, it's happening really fast. And I, I think the quality could go up significantly uh, in that kind of a training environment. So let's get back to some real airplanes for a second. You've owned many over the years, from you know historic to jets to even helicopters. So do you have a favorite? <laughs> well, of course, the, the standard answer is everybody says that I'm included is whatever one I'm in. Uh, but as as measured by the aircraft I've never sold, which is my Super Cub, my 1953 Super Cub, which I'm the number two, the second owner on that aircraft I bought at 500 total time, now approaching 30 years ago, hard to believe. And I've upgraded it. You know, it has amphibious floats on certain seasons and tires and big gear, as well as skis and all that, 160 horsepower and GPS and all that. But I've taken that airplane to the top of Hudson Bay, to the bottom of Mexico, all over the backcountry, the Florida Keys, up to the the Finger Lakes in New York, uh, and it's the slowest airplane I own. So I don't own it for speed. <laughs> and I, uh, David has flown it for me and moved around the country a couple of different times for me, which I'm appreciative of. But that aircraft gives you the sense of flight, and yet the peace that you get by looking around the countryside and this great nation in the, in the backdrop, and, and you take it in, and it's just, I don't know, it's a very happy place for me. But I love just about, and I say just about, I can't think of any airplane I don't like at the moment, I've flown over a couple hundred different model types. If you count all the different iterations of a 172, from an XP to an RG to <laughs> all those. But, you know, uh, got a type rating in a DC-3 and a B-25. And right now, finishing up a type rating in an Albatross HU-16. Wow. And I love helicopters. So, you know, I'm addicted, I think. <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not something you're going to break anytime soon, it sounds like. I think not. I'm going to take my 185 and take a, my vacation next week and take my 185 to the backcountry, Idaho, Montana, and uh, Wyoming, and just enjoy the countryside in a 185. It's a truly special thing that we have in America, 
and you know, even frankly, even North America, but America uniquely, the access we have, the, the places we could get support, the community that helps us stay flying. It's a, it's really such a cool thing. Yeah, I've uh, I've flown that Super Cub on floats a couple of times. I appreciate the opportunity, Mark. It's an awesome airplane. It's a sweet flying machine. I just wanted to let our Hangar Talk listeners know uh, that I'll throw the gauntlet down. I'm available to ferry the airplane anytime, any day, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're on. Oh uh, yeah, I, I've uh, I've built enough hours in my time that I'm not you know I'm not in need of another ten hours of um, <laughs> cross country time. But I certainly. I'd like to share that aircraft too with people that uh, know how to operate it and, and uh, enjoy that flight, which uh, I think the lowest ground speed I've ever seen is 42 or three knots and the highest is about 125. Now I've seen you land it pretty short too in the uh, short takeoff and landing demonstration that we had in Tullahoma, Tennessee last year. That was pretty interesting. A lot of people are very inspired by your performance in that. Well, it was a little longer in the takeoff roll with my Super Cub on Amphibs, but I'm pretty comfortable getting it inside of 300 feet on a, on a landing. It's important to show people that, you know, doing that safely in, in the situation where you may need to do it, engine out or something else, I think it's great training for people to learn how to fly into very small environments safely, approach of the slow speeds possible and touch down at the beginning of that opportunity. Having lost an engine or two in my life uh, over the last 40 couple years, putting one T6 in a cornfield, I was kind of pleased that I had some of that training and experience. Well, what, what's, uh, what's one of the most harrowing experiences you've had in an aircraft, if you, if you could indulge us in that for a moment? Well, <laughs> it's a lot of moments. Uh, as we all know, it's, you know, the moments of flying boredom filled by a couple of sheer moments of terror. I've actually never really been, to be honest, afraid, but I've had, uh, I think, five engines out. Fortunately, three of them were on twins, and they were non-events. Two Barons want to take off in the middle of the night. Uh, one uh, flying through a snowstorm, and one over the Grand Canyon in a snowstorm. So, but those all three twin engine outs were, yeah, oh crap, this is going to cost a lot of money when I get home. Kind of, you know, harrowing moments on my checkbook where I was going to go afford to fix them. But I did. But I have had a, a T6 on me uh, a couple of years ago that the uh, engine just went to pieces, a 50 hour motor. And um, I was trying to put it in a, a small pasture. I'll never forget the look of the horse I was looking at. I think he had brown eyes, but there was a fence that I could just got over and I got into a cornfield. It was early in June in Minnesota. So the corn was low, landed right down between the rows. And, and the farmer came over and said, I heard you. I said, well, now you heard the other five guys. You didn't hear me. I was quiet, but we towed it out of the field and, and got a new motor. And uh, he cut the alfalfa field and flew it back out of there. I had a uh, Norseman I was flying, which is the same engine as a T6. A cylinder cracked off just a couple of years ago and white smoke coming out of that thing. And I thought I was going to have to put it in the, in the golf course and having given Harrison a bad time for not landing on the par five instead of the par three. Yeah. I was looking at the par three myself and going, Oh man, that's short. <laughs> um, but I kept running long enough to fly over the top of a cornfield and land in the grass alongside of a, an old airport. So uneventful stay with the airplane as as Hoover says, fly it all the way into the crash. Yeah. Par three is only like 150, 170 yards. So yeah, anything longer than that would be better. Even a par four, <laughs> just make sure, make sure it's not a lake hole. That's all I got to say. <laughs> no, I think that's the important part of, you know, as aviators and we, we sometimes talk about there it was and how scary it was and this and that, but I don't want to scare people out of aviation. I think done safely, done with a good training, done with the awareness that, you know, you should have an out, um, it can be fun, safe, and when things do go wrong, you know, you get prepared. Good advice. Yeah, Mark. Hey, thanks so much again for the time. Really appreciate it. 
And, uh, you know, best of luck to all of us, I guess, as uh, as we navigate these interesting next few months. Yeah. Well, thanks for what you guys do and keep sharing these stories with our members and the aviation community. It's a it's a unique and I call it a community that uh, if the world is, uh, you know, six times removed, you can find somebody that knows somebody. And aviation is one time removed. We, we're a small community. We need to hang together and we're looking at a good future. Well, thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks, gang. Be well. All right, David, I'm jealous. You've gotten to fly the infamous Super Cub. I have not. So uh, tell me about it. The Super Cub on amphibious floats that Mark has is a cherry of an airplane. It was such a pleasure to fly it. In fact, I just recently wrote a caption for a photo that's going to be in uh, AOPA Pilot pretty soon. I couldn't resist turning around and landing at a lake when I was ferrying that airplane from Tennessee from a fly-in <laughs> to Frederick, Maryland. You know, I was at a comfortable cruising altitude, about you know, about 5,500 feet, and I was thinking, man, that lake sure looks good. And then I was thinking, well, should I or shouldn't I? And I figured I wouldn't tell Mark till later, but I went ahead and landed in that lake. <laughs> it was so awesome, the turquoise that's waters. Great. And that's what you could do in a Piper Super Cub on amphibious floats, which is what he talks about. You know, it's like, what's one of the favorite things for him to do? Just get the Super Cub, crank it up, and go. It's not a whole lot of pre-flighting involved. It's not that complicated. It's still pre-flighting involved. It's not that complicated. You just get in it, nice day, and go. Yep, that's right. Very cool. All right, everybody, I guess that's all the time we have for episode 100. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes and on Spotify. Give us a visit, look at our archives, and tell us what you think. All right, we'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.